I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello, I'm Jan Daly and this is the Arts Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined this week by the English playwright Simon Stevens. His impressive body of work includes pornography, a play about the 2005 London bombings, Punk Rock, about violence at an English private school, and Three Kingdoms, which divided critics earlier this year and which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Now, Simon's adaptations of two classics, One Old, One New, are about to open in London, a new version of Ibsen's A Doll's House for the Young Vic, and his dramatisation of Mark Haddon's very popular novel, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, for the National Theatre. Also with us in the studio is FT's theatre critic, Sarah Hemming. Thank you both for coming in. Simon, until now, you've mostly written your own plays, not um, dealt with other people's work. What have the challenges been in taking on these adaptations? Well, they're two very different adaptations with two very different challenges. Um, If I can talk about the Ibsen, first of all. I've always wanted to do versions. It was only last year my version of Jon Foss's I Am The Wind was the first version I'd had staged and the first version I'd been asked to do. But I always wanted to do it. I always uh, was enticed by the notion of having the opportunity to sit inside the imagination of another playwright. It's something that directors get to do all the time. It's something that um, actors do as part of their life on stage. Playwrights rarely get to do it, and it's nothing short of a privilege the Jon Fosser play was uh, was a kind of beautiful poetic play by one of my peers, uh, and ver- I very much enjoyed kind of trying to find the muscle and the action of that language. Ibsen, although sharing a nationality with Jon, it's interesting. I'm inclined to call Jon Jon and Ibsen Ibsen rather than Henrik. <laughs> he kind of towers. He's one of the great towers of dramatic literature. So the very notion of kind of stepping inside his shoes or sitting inside his head is at one and the same time extraordinarily daunting and extraordinarily exciting. To speak specifically, Doll's House is a tremendously familiar play to a lot of people. Sidney Harris's beautiful version was just staged at the Donmar within the past five years. It's on the A-level syllabus. It's a play which is very difficult to bring something new to audiences. And in a sense... That was kind of a challenge. I think I attacked it with the intention originally of really reconsidering the thing. It's fascinating. Michael Mayer's significant biography of Ibsen called imaginatively Ibsen. <laughs> uh, it talks about the, 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 the formal power of that play on its first production, not just the, the language that he was writing in, which was more naturalistic than people had probably probably written in before, or, or, or the setting of the piece, which was uh, scathingly domestic, which felt radical at the time, but the kind of construction of the play around Nora Helmer and the way that scenes cut into her consciousness. And he did, the adjective he described, he used to describe it, was cubist. And originally I was really taken by... by 
being liberated by the fact that the play's a classic to do something very radical with it and really reinvent the structure and really reinvent the form and just cut in and out of her consciousness and really create a contemporary cubist response. And the more I sat in his head and had him glowering at me from my screensaver and the more I sat in that play, the more I realised that it would be a mistake to do that that the only thing to do was just to be truthful to his imagination and truthful to his vision. Sarah, does that resonate with your experience of Ibsen? Yeah, I mean, I think I suppose one of the things about about that play is that, as you say, it was so radical at the time in its social import as well, wasn't it? I can't remember who it was now that described the slamming door as slamming down the centuries, you know, when Nora storms out, and that was so shocking, which you would think, in a social sense wouldn't be now i mean was that hard to to recapture because sometimes that is that doesn't have the same resonance yeah i i guess it's it's i've I've got two very kind of contradictory answers to that if you're thinking in particular of the consideration of patriarchy in the play and the radicalism of a woman leaving her husband leaving her children and leaving home being perhaps slightly dissipated in a culture in which it could be argued there's a higher level of female emancipation. My two contradictory answers are this. One is I'm not altogether sure that women are as emancipated as sometimes we like to think they are. It's certainly something which has driven Carrie Cracknell, the play's director, to try and find something in this play. Because I think she, as a woman in her 30s, as a, as a, as a mother of a daughter, is, is uh, very acutely aware of the extent to which those driving forces of patriarchy and employment and in finance continue to be strong now. So in that sense, I think it's as relevant as it ever was. The contradictory answer to that is the more I worked on the play and the more I read Ibsen's journals about the play, the more I was struck by the notion that he never really considered it to be what has been described as a piece of feminist drama. That wasn't his interest. He was much more interested in trying to dramatise and excavate the authenticity of the individual. And it happened in this story that the individual whose authenticity he was fascinated in was a woman. Uh, And that became something that really, really fascinated me, this notion of how an individual is true to themselves. So it could become about more than just a woman leaving her husband. It could become about anybody who's in a situation where they need to to break out. I think it absolutely is. And I think what's fascinating to me now, 150 years later, 146 years later, um, is I think we're looking at the rights of individuals from an altogether different perspective. There's a line at the end of the play where Nora's arguing with Torvald, her husband, and he, he draws on a whole series of different things to persuade her to stay. He talks about religion and he talks about morality. Uh, and one of the things he talks about is society. And Nora's response to him is that she she's not certain if she feels faith anymore. She's not certain what morality is. And she says she's not entirely sure if there's any such thing as society. <laughs> and I remember thinking, gosh, I'm sure I've heard a woman say there's no such thing as society before. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> yeah. It also makes me think that uh, the mm. early, um, one of the early feminist slogans was about the fact that the personal is political. So in this case, you're saying that the, the, the emotional truth of the character leads us on to all these societal and political yes, I think political so. things. I think so. And, and also that I think we're at a stage where the rights of individuals 
have almost become chaotic in their power. And actually, maybe it's time to kind of reconsider, <laughs> reconsider our commitment to only ourselves, and actually to reconsider the possibility that we ought to commit to society to just the same extent as we've been committing to ourselves as individuals. And for me, that's why the play is extraordinarily hot. It's also a play about managing debt <laughs> and yes. the kind of emotional catastrophe of managing debt. And uh, mm. so I think there's a resonance in that. There certainly is. Well, talking of individuals and their feelings and thoughts, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime presents a really special set of challenges, I assume, because we are in, in the book, at least, we're inside the head of a very, very unusual <laughs> personality. Yeah. Um, How does one put on stage mm, a drama that is so great. that is taking place so clearly within the very mind good. of one young boy? It's the key problem with that book when you read it. Somebody described the book to me recently as the nation's favourite novel. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure it's true, but it'd be in the top ten. <laughs> um and when you read it, you're struck with the voice of this extraordinary child who sees things with a clarity and an honesty that uh, is both uh, is as joyful as it, as it is disorientating. I have to say, as a writer, I'm very suspicious of the notion of epiphany or the moment of inspiration. I kind of don't really buy it. I'm much more interested in craft than I am in any kind of notion of the ether. But I, I genuinely was walking down my street a couple of years ago when I was working on the novel, and I just got it. <laughs> yeah, I, to do it. I had no what, idea where it came from. What did you get? Well, I, it, 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 of course, we don't want to reveal spoilers mm, here. But a, a few. Can I, we have a few spoilers? Yeah, well, I'll tell you the, 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 what was important, what, what I realised that Mark had done in the same way that, for example, Roald Dahl in that other children's classic, the BFG, writes the book entirely from the perspective of the central character as he's learning to write and BFG finishes with that beautiful sentence and then Sophie taught me to write and I wrote this book and you've just finished reading it. Mark does the same thing with Christopher Boone. The bulk of that book, in fact the entirety of that book, is Christopher's book. And what I realised and what was dramatically interesting to me is that, is that Christopher's book in the novel has three readers. There's Christopher, the writer, and then there's Siobhan, his teacher, and then there's Ed, his dad. And Siobhan and Ed when they read the novel, have a very dramatic relationship to it. I toyed with the notion of one point of having two Christophers, Christopher the writer and Christopher the character, uh, and that was nearly interesting. But when I realised that the book was about writing, as all Mark's books are, from his kid's book, The Agent Said's book, to his beautiful new novel, The Red House, um, he's, he's a writer who's fascinated with how we read. I decided to make the readers central to the dramatisation of Christopher's voice. Oh, <laughs> it still sounds like um, though a very, I mean, an exciting but also perhaps slightly crazy thing to to try and do for stage in that case. I mean, do you think it? Are you drawn to doing things that are um, a little bit, well, rec not reckless? No, crazy, um, it, difficult, impossible, impossible. <laughs> I well, um, I'm drawn to challenges. You know, I'm in. I'm 41 now. I've been writing for kind of 13 years professionally or whatever uh, and I'm acutely aware like all writers I think like all writers who have a love of other writers we've become acutely aware of writers biographies 
Uh, and, and I'm acutely aware that a lot of writers dry up in their 40s and 50s. If you look at the kind of pyramid of people making money out of playwriting at the moment, there's a whole load of people making money in their 20s, slightly fewer in their 30s, and then slightly fewer in the 40s, and then fewer in the 50s and fewer in the 60s, and when we're left with Carol Churchill at the top of the pyramid. Uh, I thought, you know, a few years ago I realised the only way I was going to really carry on and sustain myself and nourish myself would be if I took on challenges and worked in ways I hadn't worked before. Are you going to use um, technology? <laughs> I mean, I was thinking... <laughs> now we're going to do it all in candlelight. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, well, we were talking earlier about um, Katie Mitchell's yeah. production of The Waves, which, of course, is another novel that mm. takes place entirely in people's yeah, yeah, for heads. Sure. For sure. Um, I, uh, it was something that came up really early in my conversations with Mark because he was a big fan of uh, Complicite's Disappearing Number mm-hmm. and was quite drawn to the possibility of using video or projection in a way that might dramatise Christopher's imagination. And my uh, concern was I wanted to write a play that could be done in a rehearsal room. I wanted to write a play that could be done in a classroom, if needs be. I wanted to write a play that could be done with amateur actors. I think, I hope, I hope, you know, the play has a life in that sense as well. I hope it's not entirely dependent on technology to work dramatically. So you talked about doing a doll's house, and you've obviously found things in that that really resonate with, you know, our, our contemporary world. But what, what did you find in this that, you know, that's bigger than, is the stuff there that's bigger than the story itself? Yeah, I think there is, and I think... Fascinatingly to me, maybe not to anybody else, is and surprising to me is there are resonances between both pieces uh, in terms of their consideration in particular of honesty and Christopher's attempt to, or not his attempt, Christopher's medical inability to lie. I think as we're talking almost simultaneously while the Prime Minister's talking to the Leveson Commission, (laughs) I think a dramatic consideration of the urgency of honesty uh, and of the difficulty of honest work before. Are you going to use um, technology? (laughs) I mean, I was thinking... (laughs) Now we're going to do it all in candlelight. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking... Well, we were talking earlier about... um, Katie Mitchell's yeah. production of The Waves, which, of course, is another novel that mm-hmm. takes place entirely in people's yeah, yeah, for heads. Sure. For sure. Um, I, uh, it was something that came up really early in my conversations with Mark because he was a big fan of uh, Complicite's Disappearing Number mm-hmm. and was quite drawn to the possibility of using video or projection in a way that might dramatise Christopher's imagination. And my uh, concern was I wanted to write a play that could be done in a rehearsal room. I wanted to write a play that could be done in a classroom, if needs be. I wanted to write a play that could be done with amateur actors. I think, I hope, I hope, you know, the play has a life in that sense as well. I hope it's not entirely dependent on technology to work dramatically. So you talked about doing a doll's house, and you've obviously found things in that that really resonate with, you know, our, our contemporary world but what what did you find in this that you know that's bigger than is the stuff there that's bigger than the story itself yeah i think there is and i think fascinatingly to me maybe not to anybody else is and surprising to me is there are resonances between both pieces uh in terms of 
their consideration in particular of honesty and Christopher's attempt to, or not his attempt, Christopher's medical inability to lie. I think as we're talking almost simultaneously while the Prime Minister's talking to the Leveson Commission, <laughs> I think a dramatic consideration of the urgency of honesty uh, and of the difficulty of honesty and the dislocating nature of our sense of self now at the start of the 21st century. You know, the plays about a fractured, atomized Europe at what may well prove to be the end of capitalism and, and the, um, the impossibility of keeping a sense of self in those kind of frenetic circumstances, the detective story. I mean, again, it, not unlike, you know, Curious Incidents, a detective story. Christopher sets out to solve two mysteries, and he's obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. Um, I became fascinated by the reason why the detective story seems to be the defining narrative or one of the defining narratives of our time and the way, to say, the Western was in the 50s and obviously the war movie in the 40s. Detective stories are everywhere now. The outburst of detective novel writing in Scandinavia in the past 10 years and television is dominated by detective fiction from the, the bill as was to The Wire, you know, for me, one of the key dramatic texts of the last decade. Um, I think at the heart of that fascination is this notion that people have a feeling that things have gone very badly wrong and they very much want to find out why and who's to blame. But the, the style of the production was very important to that, though, wasn't it? And that's what sort of divided people, I suppose, was the, the work that you did with the German director, Sebastian Nibling. Yeah, yeah. Cause, because it was, um, it, was, it, was very, it was choreographed, it was very physical, it was very visual. Because it was about the sex trade, mm -hmm. there was all sorts of uh, people with dildos. On, uh, yeah, there was a, a lot going on, wasn't there? I mean, that was, how important was that to getting across the sort of fractured society that you're talking about? I think it was absolutely fundamental in terms not necessarily of the social fracturing but the atomization of self, of a man falling apart, of a man losing any sense of who he is anymore. It, I, I think the critical response became very entrenched. So there's a whole generation of bloggers who took very partisan, supportive positions, and then it became like the uh, the eye of a kind of critical storm. <laughs> and I was very, very grateful to them and think they wrote really beautifully and passionately, but it was difficult to become dispassionate about consideration of the play. And especially in England, people become obsessed with the sexual imagery in a way that I don't think they are in Germany or Estonia. For me, the key images in the play, there's one key image in the play which will may surprise you, to me being very central, the way that lighting is used in the production is extraordinary. And throughout the second and third parts, whenever the central detective is lit, he's cast with two shadows. That's a very simple thing. But watching Nick Tennant, the brilliant actor who played Ignatius Stone, realising that he had two shadows, to me was much more central to the dramatisation of my ideas than the fact that some actors had some dildos on. I mean, the dildo scene was just funny, you know? It was backstage in a porn studio, and it was just funny. <laughs> and, and a time when pornography's everywhere. You know, pornography as an art form is more present than it's ever been. Recent kind of studies are revealing the extent to which young teenagers have a damaged notion of sexuality because of the amount of porn they consume. It's surprising to still be coy about that. And I think what Sebastian wanted to show was the kind of working side of that. So people drinking cups of coffee and phoning their children while in the middle of making a film. Uh, for me, I found a real comedy in that. But for sure as well, it's a play about 
sex trafficking. So we wanted to objectify the body, not just female bodies. It's quite a fair amount of male nudity in it as well. More male nudity, in fact. (laughs) It sounds as if this does um, encapsulate something about the difference between British theatre and continental theatre. Is that something you want to explore in the future? What are you working on now? Are you working on a new play or another adaptation? I'm uh, uh, I'm about to write a film. For Marianne, from Marianne Elliott. Uh, and then, so, a, an original film? Yeah. Oh, OK. Uh, and then I'm going to write a new play for the Royal Court. And then I'm going to write a new play for Sebastian. So it kind of goes back to my, uh, to my uh, to what I was saying to you before. I feel a real hunger and a real need to challenge myself. So it's not like I'm going to entirely uh, discard the kind of beautiful detail and fragility of attention that you can get in Brit- in the best of British naturalistic theatre. But I'm just excited by the possibility that there's more than that as well. Um, I've written a play for the Royal Exchange that I hope Sarah Frankham, who directed Punk Rock and On the Shore of the Wide World, uh, may direct sometime in the future. And that is as straightforward a play as you can get. <laughs> so I've not entirely abandoned narrative and character <laughs> and, and detail and nice plays about families in Stockport. But, uh, but I hope there's more as well. I hope there's more. Well, you are nothing if not prolific, my goodness. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. A Doll's House is at the Young Vic from June the 29th and the curious incident of the dog in the night time is at the National Theatre from the 24th of July. There'll be a live broadcast of the curious incident of the dog in the night time to cinemas in the UK and worldwide on September the 6th. Thank you to Simon Stevens and Sarah Hemming and to you for listening. The Arts Podcast was produced by Griselda Murray-Brown. For more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.